Hello and welcome to another episode of The Warrior Artist, a podcast full of practical advice and insights into artist practice to inspire you on your creative journey. My name is Aideen Glynn, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Annie Hogg. Annie is a visual artist based in County Tipperary, Ireland. After graduating with a diploma in fine art from the Crawford College of Art and Design in Cork in 2001, and a BA in sculpture from Aki College of Art in the Netherlands in 2002, Annie worked and lived in environmental protest camps and learned organic horticulture. In recent years, she has returned to her creative practice. Annie forages in the landscape for materials to create her art. She uses plants, soils, stones, shells and bones to extract pigment and ink for her mark-making work and to create sculptural work. She has won several awards, residencies and art grants, and most recently was the winner of the K-Fest Arts Festival in Clorglin, County Kerry. Annie, thank you so much for joining us on the Warrior Artist Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dean. I'm very excited. (laughs) I'm just so intrigued by uh, your work, having seen it on Instagram. Actually, I haven't seen it in person yet. And the more I read into your process, it's just fascinating. But I want to take you back to... So you went to art college and then after art college, you worked and lived in environmental protest camps. Can you tell us about about that? So I graduated from college in 2002 over in the Netherlands as I was off the island of Ireland. I think my idea was just keep moving. So I did. I did a bit of traveling, moved around in kind of squat scenes as well. And through that dabbled for a little bit, just in and out of a few bits and bobs of a protest work and then went over to New Zealand and the idea of going there was to woof the the willing workers on organic on on organic farms thing and I was just trying to live as cheaply as I could so I was woofing and you get like fed and bored for the for pulling weeds essentially and my idea was like you know that's it now I, I learn how to grow organically and kind of get set up for when everything goes pear-shaped <laughs> and I, I was doing that for maybe oh, four or five months and then came across a campaign there that was an extension of a coal mine so I became very very heavily involved in that that was the safe happy valley campaign and from there got a when my visa was up my, my tourist visa or whatever it was got a one-way ticket to Tasmania I hadn't been aware that there was the kind of blockading happening in Taz that was happening so it's all forest logging industrial scale logging of, of ancient Gondwana red forest really amazing old rainforest in, in temperate zones went over there with a one-way ticket and yeah spent three years there so that was really kind of the the main bulk of it like everything else had kind of be, been dipping toe in and slowly gearing up to it but like when I was 10 that's what I wanted to do when I grew up I wanted to to live in a tree and fight the good fight so it was very much landing myself I was 25 at that time when I landed in Taz I was 25 and when I left Ireland I was 21 yeah and then I came back when I was 29 and went on to do a course up in John Colliher up in Antonio Gloss the organic horticulture course there yeah then just kind of was fairly lost for a few years um worked part-time in, in a health shop and that kind of stuff and tried to have a creative practice didn't really work out I, 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 I can only do it if I'm doing it full-time I think it's not just a creative practice I think I'm like that with everything I think I 
my concentration has to be pretty precise. Yeah. And then five years ago, it was just a case of I was I was working for somebody else in, in a shop and not happy and not in any way thinking this is a good way to be living a life <laughs> at all. And thought, right, just quit it all, stop everything and pursue what you want to pursue. Now is the time. I would have left art college with the idea that there's too much important things to be doing in the world rather than spending my time and energy on a creative practice. And that was how I felt in my early 20s. I'm now in my early 40s and I've done what I feel I needed to do and wanted to do. And now I can justify to myself spending time completely absorbed within the creative process. But I suppose what you're doing now is you're actually shining a light on some of those concerns you had through your art practice. And I wanted to ask you, so during that time, did you have any creative practice at all? I always had a drawing habit, always drew. And there would have been times in those like 10 years, say, where I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd have to get up and start drawing out what I had been dreaming of or what I had been clocking over in my head. And if I didn't at least get it out on paper, it would physically burn. <laughs> it was like heartburn. So it, it was always there. You know, that that thing that like happens when when you're a creative person, if you're not pursuing it, it pursues you. So I would very much have experienced that. And it just got to a stage whereby I was so severely unhappy and physically feeling it in my body that it just had to be dealt with. And how did you start then? So you had a drawing practice. How did you begin again? (laughs) Oh, Aideen, I thought I was being so clever. I thought, right, so I have to make money from this. And that's the best way to go about doing it, because let's be sensible about it now. I'd be a competent drawer. So I thought, I'll illustrate children's books. That's a great idea. (laughs) I love it. So, yeah, it turns out that um, people who make children's books want it all to be very kind of happy and bright and positive. (laughs) So my dark and detailed drawings of everything dying anyway. Didn't earn me too much graces. <laughs> I had been doing, oh gosh, what's the term? An agency over in the UK. I had been doing kind of one-to-one mentorship with um, a lady within that agency. They're very good. They're an excellent agency. And she said to me one day, she said, you know, didn't you tell me you started off as a, as a, in fine art a long time ago? I was like, oh, I did. Yeah, yeah. And she said, do you not think that's where you belong and you should go back to it? <laughs> now, the woman was right, but oh, oh my gosh, I got so annoyed. Oh, I was vicious. I, after the, after the conversation with her, I went up to my friend's house and I was like, yeah, never guess. And I'm sure she's just being mean and oh, blah, blah, blah. But the woman was 100% right. <laughs> I was getting portfolio together and I'd say I spent about a year to a year and a half on it. It was a learning curve. <laughs> but it was actually, it was for a, a Welsh folktale that I was illustrating that never got published. Anything I did never got published. But anyway, that I was doing for this chap over there in Wales. 
and I was looking for a, a blue color. I could see the color in my mind and I couldn't make it with the watercolors I was working with. And so I thought I went online looking for it. And I saw a lady over in Berlin who was making her own watercolors. She was working them to the recipes of the first watercolors that were being made with man-made ones, uh, synthetic, synthetic recipes. And I thought, cheapers, that's amazing. That's so clever. And then it all came back to me. My mom is a spinner and a dyer. And like I grew up in a house with all of these smells and all of plants being brewed up and wool and fleece rather being, being put into it. So when I went investigating how to make my own colour and started kind of fiddling around with things, all of these smells started coming up in the scullery of the rental house I was in at the time. And it just brought me back to like childhood. And it was like, oh, of course, it's, that's always been there. Um, and that changed everything. Like the, the work I had been doing for illustration was really precise, really, really precise, constricted, illustrative work. And then, yeah, embarking on that whole thing of making the botanical links, which I don't do anymore, but making the botanical links, it like it physically freed up the brush stroke. It physically freed up everything and how I was moving and thinking and all as well. And when then the penny dropped, oh, that lady in London was totally right. Here we go. So it's been quite a progression through materiality from then. And your work, so your work moved into abstraction through making your own pigments at the same time. Yes. And how did you go about, like, so you found this lady in Berlin, but what you're doing now, like, is so incredible. I think, how did you figure out how to forage and how to make all these pigments and inks yourself? The inks are pretty simple because it's just a, it's just those same practice that you do each time. It, it Well, it changes slightly for different plants, but ever so slightly. So you're only dealing with colour compounds, which you know the the yellow that you get that color compound that's present in a load of different plants so you're treating it the same way it's not even the plants that you're working with it's the chemicals within them that you're extracting and working from there i'm very pedantic in how i approach things so when i discovered this like i went all out into like the researching the chemistry the i mean i've got stacks of notebooks of like minute differences by each tweak and taking every element into account and I really enjoy that I, re- I really enjoy that kind of pedantic nature that I have it, it learns it teaches me to learn things more in-depthly and so then just kind of following all the threads along it went from from that then to how to make pigment a dry pigment powder from these plants and that led then to, to minerals to to rocks and all around us and that came out of at a good time because while it's lovely to go and forage and all like when I was a kid and my mom taught me how to forage it was like if you see like three or four of the same plant you know you can take one but you know only if you have to and just draw it first and bring it home and then we'll identify it in the book so I was always taught at the last step you pick but now because of the way things are and especially here in the area that I'm in we have industrial farming in, in our locality. So there's a lot of sprays and all that are being sprayed that weren't ever. And we've got a huge decline in insect population locally here. And so that's like a knock-on effect for the bats and the birds and everything else. It, and even though the foraging rule of thirds has changed now to like, you know, one eighth or one tenth, if you see 10 plants, well, then you can take one because of the strain the environmental stuff is under. 
but I, I can't even bring myself to do that anymore really I, you know I, I struggle to to take anything that, that rule age. of 10th is that something you've discovered or you create yourself or is that like a guideline it's a guideline that a lot of people working with natural products like this are beginning to to take on I've sat in for a few workshops with um, other pigment people who are now also saying like one tenth. I kind of come up with one eighth myself just because of my own area and thinking that's all I'm going to do. And I was really happy when I heard several other people saying the same thing, that they were noticing the same thing in their places in different countries and that they were now beginning to follow this, changing it from the the classical one third to, to one tenth. So I think it's just we're all noticing these things and we're all taking action where we can. And also for the colour extraction from plants, I find that to get those chemical compounds, I needed to take more plants for that action. Whereas with the charring process, you can take less and you can take anything at any time of the year. You know, I mean, I usually go for dead stuff, to be honest. And it's just a much smaller quantity of product for want of a better word, that you're taking from the hedge or from, from someplace that the riverbank that, that needs it. So you would have started off with this rule of thirds and then to eighths and tenths, and that would have been for extraction of colour. And now, with if you're just doing charring, obviously your work has moved more to monochrome as well. It's like the charcoal, the installation. So that's really influenced your work. And can I ask you, you're saying about the, in the environment around you, that you've noticed a change in industrial farming. Does that mean that you have less to take there are there is there less or is there still dead things and things you can use or do you have to go further afield there is less to take a lot of what I use now to char specifically like I was charring three or four jars of things a few days ago and they were all out of my own garden and they were just clippings that I had to take so that I could get in and out the pathway so I'm doing it that way now. I still go to specific places when I'm up to something with a theme for work. So I would have gone down last summer to the Bear Peninsula specifically to be getting things from the environment around the, the Kailach story and all and around the Kailach stone itself. From there, I would have taken a few clippings of um, of holly branches but also soil, uh, the, the peat soil and, and things like that. But yeah, just always in smaller, smaller quantities. And I think because of my attitude towards charring and the reaction it gives me inside, which is a very natural reaction, and I think every human would have the same reaction and does have the same reaction who, who chars something, it becomes a very important substance. The material is charged the charred material is charged. <laughs> There's that whole transformation that occurs and it is very alchemical. And because of, I guess, because of my consideration to, to what I'm taking and how I'm taking it as well, it becomes very holy. Well, they certainly are in the way you present them. Like you, I saw on your website that you have these charred objects that you found that are blackened and then you have them preserved within this blown glass. So they do look very holy, like very special and things that would have disintegrated and you've kind of preserved them in some way. Can you describe the charring process? Like, how do you do it? Like, do you build a fire? Is the fire in your house, in your garden? I have a fire pit and I've got lots of different sizes of tins 
with a good seal lid. In each one, there's one small hole put into the side of the top or the bottom. It doesn't really matter where, as long as it's only one. So the charring is the process of removing oxygen and applying intense heat. And so without the oxygen being present, all of the water and gases held within the object are expelled through that one singular hole. It goes on to be formed into a carbon, a natural material of all of these different chemicals and biological makeups can have all of those things taken away so that you're left with a carbonated thing, <laughs> object, instead of its, its, its regular object. So the, the deterioration, the, the natural disintegration is halted in steps because it's undergone this chemical change. You're saying it halts the degradation? Yeah, yeah. The carbon, um, the carbon holes. I mean, I have a love of fire anyway. I, I'll, I'll make a fire pit for any old reason. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really important thing to me and I, I love meeting people around a fire pit I love having the smell of the fire off me I love passing somebody else and getting the smell of a fire pit off them because you know you're a kindred spirit and you're a fire person too yeah I, I love fire pits it's a, just to be around fire just to and to hold it and to you know for the life that comes with it like oh gosh any old excuse so the, the charring process, I guess, is just an extension from my, my love of fire into it being another level of productivity as well, I guess. How long does it take? You have a tin and you put your object you want to preserve to carbonate inside it. And do you have one object per each tin or can you put multiple objects in each tin? And how long does it take? So it depends on what I'm doing. So if I'm making char that I'm going to grind down and make this paint, I will have the tin stuffed. So absolutely jam-packed full of material. I usually do it the same material in each tin so that I know then when I open it that it's not going to be a mixture of, you know, dock roots and holly leaves, that it, this one is just the holly and that one is just the dock root, you know, so I can I can play around with them because they give different colours as well. That's the amazing thing. It's not all just the one colour. There's a whole host of colours. Oh, and they're beautiful. Each one is stunning. Um, for the sculptural pieces, I will do those individually as well. And depending what they are, depending on their size, on their, their fragility or their, their staunchness, they will take different times. So anything from like seven seconds up to an hour, depending on what it is you're doing. That's for the sculptural pieces. And then for the, the jars packed full of, of organic matters, again, they're uh, their their dampness, their freshness, all of that will lead back. Also, their density will lead back. So if it's very dry jar of winter bramble, they're after getting lighter. You know, everything is after coming out already. Well, a lot of things are after coming out already. So they're a lot lighter and they'll char quicker. Whereas if it's the bramble that I've just chopped away from the footpath to get into the studio, and I'm doing that now in a few hours. That will take a little bit longer because they're still fresh. And do you have to wait for everything to cool down before you can use it? So it's really, really important to allow the jar to cool down maybe five minutes or so before opening the tin. No matter how excited you are and how curious you are to see what's after happening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's not even a thing of like well it is kind of a thing of health and safety you don't want to burn yourself but like you know 
fat heals. What it's really about is not opening the tin and allowing oxygen to get in while there's still tremendous heat there because it will go in flames again. It will catch. I've been that soldier. I have lost quite a few on the flames. And can you use it after five minutes? Like, can you use the charred material for your own work or do you let it go cool completely? I would let it cool completely. Yeah. And then just take it inside. And if it's stuff that's going to be ground down, I'll grind it down and store it in a jar, manual picture on the the shelves in here. Yeah. And then come back to it as and when I need it. And feel the urge for it so you have these jars in your studio with these and you everything has been charged by the individual plant so you know what's in each jar you label them and then do you mix do you add something to the charred object then so that you can paint with that yeah a binder is always added and different quantities of water depending on what way so i always work with brushwork and i would play with the quantity of binder and water for different effects so sometimes I like things to be thickly laid on in layers and then other layers I have them very wishy-washy and mellower and so playing around with the making of the the paint then from that aspect for when they're being laid down on paper. Is that an acrylic binder you're using? I use all kinds of binders yeah I have shop bought ones I have homemade ones I've got dodgy ones that I've made up myself <laughs> out of my own little brain <laughs> um, so yeah it, it's it's a play on, on all of those and each one will have a different end result so you'll get different yeah different results on paper when things dry depending on what the binder is as well and I like layering I, I like laying down things in layers so it's interesting to use the binders for that purpose of different effects throughout the layers is the work stable then or will it degrade over time does the binder help the longevity of the pigment the charcoal is great because it's pretty staunch uh it's not going to be affected by uv the only problem with the charcoal is that it sits on top of the surface and it can be rubbed off you know like when we use charcoal sticks to to draw with and we can rub them off in the exact same way so that's another reason for using the binder is to stabilize that process um, and prevent it from happening essentially yeah the 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 minerals as well so like the stones that I, I've been using for the last year or so they're all pretty stable when it comes to to UV as well there there will be slight changes but nothing in comparison to the the chemical compounds coming out of the, the plant materials so yeah things like the the ochres and the iron rich the really heavy iron rich stuff are, are fairly stable as well and can you char soil yeah. And stone as well, like absolutely everything. It's not just organic matter. I haven't tried stone. When you apply heat to the uh, the the yellow kind of raw ochre that you'd, you'd get around the coastal areas and up in the Cumbras, uh, when you apply heat to that, it goes orange to red. And I've seen it done to purple. I've never achieved those kind of temperatures, but not black. It's not being charred. The colour is just being changed through heat in that way. The... Soils, I, I do char soils, specifically peat. I love working with peat and turf and I love using them in both sculptural terms and in, in paint making terms for, for mark making. There's something really, I don't know, there's just something so rich and accessible about working with peat. It's, it's a magnificent thing. And I, funnily enough, there's a, a small sculptural piece that I made a few, a couple of months back of peat 
that was not turf. It had been cut, but hadn't been dried yet. So it was still wet. So I'm presuming it's called peat and not turf at that stage. I think they have to be dried logs before they're called turf, aren't they? Not sure. <laughs> yeah, neither am I. I'm playing, I'm erring on the side of caution with this. So I'll call it peat. Um, so the three pieces of this peat log, I, I charred them. And when I opened up the tin can, oh gosh, the smell, this floral bouquet of scent came up. It was amazing. And it was like getting a whiff of scent that had been there like thousands of years ago when these plants were growing on it and it was exposed and a flowery meadow before it got waterlogged or whatever happened. I don't know what kind of ball actually it came from. It was a gift. But um, oh, it was it was incredible. It was oh, it was just a really astounding scent. Is that something so, yeah. you've considered uh, using in your installations? So I know you have your sculptural pieces and your mark making, and I know you're exploring sound. Have you ever thought of it? Could you introduce smell? I mean, that's so evocative. I don't know. Would you be allowed to have something burning <laughs> in some controlled way? I suppose I could just walk around after being sitting at the fire pit for the night. <laughs> wafting against people <laughs> health and safety be damned <laughs> so you work in 2d and 3d and do you decide like obviously that at the point of gathering something you are deciding because you're charring a tin of leaves or roots for mark making or you're deciding that's something i'm going to preserve so you're deciding the composition before you char that's the sculpture um so from my little foray into children's book illustration um I continued on with the, the 2D practice for a couple of years simply because I think I was learning it all and I was kind of gearing myself up and this was a comfortable enough place to be in and it was accessible because, I mean, at this stage I was working from a table at the end of the bed in a share house, you know, it wasn't like I had studio space or anything. And studio space to rent just wasn't didn't exist in West Cork. So yeah, it was it was that was just what I could do, I guess. I always had the intention of coming back into a sculptural practice. I mean, I'm not I always say like mark making, they're they're not paintings. I mean, I'm not a painter at all by any means. And I always had the intention of coming back to a sculptural practice and an installation practice. So that thankfully was able to begin happening last year and I guess nowadays I still work in 2D I still do all of my mark making and it allows it, it just allows me to kind of think things through somewhat the the pieces that are hanging up on the studio wall they're behind me now they're not set to go any place they don't they're they're not being exhibited they're not for a body of work they're just for me that's just for play that's just to get things in my head, out of my head and and communicate. I feel that I'm a better communicator through visual than I am through verbal. So that's what, what they are. And that's what the the couple of years work of mark making was before I came back to the sculpture and installation work as well. Yeah, it was very much that. But I had been stepping back and not erring towards doing anything in the 3D, um, whereas now I'm full steam ahead. <laughs> the sculptural work is really then the main the main body of work and the mark making is more for yourself. It's more documentation or 
working on a process or even working out the, the pigments and stuff. And then your sculpture work, the ones I've seen, they're really, really beautiful. And there's lots of other elements you've introduced, like there's blown glass. And I saw one with perspex and things are hanging on threads. Do you make the blown glass? Do you make all the elements or do you commission people to help you or do you purchase? Uh, commission. So I had an amazing, amazing glass floor step in for Lost, um, which is the installation with the blown glass in it, holding the chart pieces. Uh, Adrian Diamond is her name. She's up in Leitrim. And very last minute, she pulled everything together and I sent her on these really precise working drawings which she blew glass too, exactly. I mean, she wow. just, she's amazing. Yeah, she pulled it off incredibly. So you gave yeah, her the dimensions of the piece you've charred and then she blew glass that it would fit into. I gave her the dimensions of the, the, the vessel, the glass vessel that I wanted. And she was able to blow the glass to those dimensions five times because they were all different sizes. Incredible. Amazing. Um, so yeah, for, for yeah, amazing, amazing. That and it was very much like started work in I think it was August or September. I can't remember exactly September, and the the whole installation was going to be exhibited in January. So it was a frantic <laughs> find somebody who can do this, who is available to do this, who who will do this. <laughs> so it was a pretty frantic winter for that kind of aspect. But yeah, she was amazing. She um she did it and did it to an exceptionally high standard plus she had me frantically on the phone poor woman <laughs> and how do you suspend them because i could see there were glass and these beautiful objects inside them how did you hang so them? i brought them up to dublin to sinead whose surname is now escaping me and she has a studio up there glean studios in dublin and she drilled them for me uh wow. so each Drill hole had to also be of a specific size because I had gathered branches and twigs from the space where the installation was about. And I had gone down to the bronze foundry. Um, McWilkins. Um, yes, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, I had gone down yeah. to Mick to uh, cast the bronze. So there was bronze in this installation as well, was there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the twigs that the Vessels are suspended on, um, are suspended through pierced holes in the glass and held in the glass. Tweaks. So this the object inside the glass bulb is the organic matter that you've charred, and then you have the brass branch and then the glass. Oh, it's beautiful. And was that your did you draw out or dream up this idea of what you wanted? Yes. Then you got commissioned people to have you create it. Yeah, it is quite actually like a children's book or a fairy tale or something. There's something there's something very visually like it could be from something from fairy tale or folklore. Or these little objects hanging or suspended. The the shape of the glass vessels were of extreme importance to get that across. The idea of that back panel is that these are remnants of human activity found by fairy or other being being held being documented by them like magic <laughs> wow that's interesting i didn't read that now but i could get that um fairy folklore idea tell us about this exhibition lost the, the whole inspiration behind it um it's a very sad story and i wish it wasn't true the hedges 300 year old hedges that my great grandmother would have picked mushrooms from that my mother 
taught me how to forage correctly from, that my granny would have picked a few violets for her May altar from, which I thought would always be there because they always had been down through my, my, my female line anyway, were ripped asunder, were taken apart. Uh, new landowners took, bought the land and, yeah, decided that there'd be none of that little field to carry on now. Get rid of all of that. And they hedgerows, were, are, not they, are they protected though, hedgerows, or is that just from cutting on roads? Yeah, I don't know how that all came about, but it came about. Maybe if you buy so many acres, you're entitled to do what you want with things that are dividing it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I really can't fathom it. And that's um, the area where you're living now, is it? The area yeah, from where yeah, you saw this yeah. change. Wow. Your back garden, your backyard, basically. Yeah, like what I would have considered home, really. And I mean, it was such a dense, genuinely vibrant place with life. I mean, and that's all gone. So it came from that. And it came from the guilt I had around, I was still living in West Cork when it all happened. Not being here, not being aware that it was happening, not doing anything to stop it or even slow it down or even just being a thorn in the side of the people doing it. Yeah, and, and given the background of us like doing all this stuff in other places, four other places, when I came to my own back garden, I wasn't here and I didn't do anything and felt really bad about it. And also felt a huge, like a huge amount of loss for what I considered home, you know. So yeah, it came from that. Another aspect, I guess, is just kind of a call to to observe that that's what was there and this is what is there now. And surely we can't be okay to put down this road surely this is a bad idea like look at it look at it just trying to yeah show show the black and white of the situation it's very sad this is what you're saying the theme of Stalastasia is that you know so was it Sol the theme of Stalastalgia so I can't say it so your work's inspired (laughs) by the theme of Stalastalgia like nostalgia but it's, it's the emotional or existential distress caused by environmental changes, but is a link to home. So I could see now that is your home and it's been yeah. uh, destroyed. These hedgerows that are being preserved by hundreds of years by all the superstition to do with fairies and fairy forts, which is what preserved a lot of those hedgerows that are, you know, were gone in other countries. That term, Salastalgia, I got from Natalia Bayless, who made the amazing, she composed the sound piece to go with Lost. And it was through our initial discussion about what this work is and would you be interested in making a sound piece for it and all of that. And Natalia said, oh, oh yeah, it's like, it's all that long, that theme of nostalgia. I was like, what? <laughs> what now? <laughs> that word, I've been using it everywhere. <laughs> Wow. Well, when you put it in your statement, I had to Google it. I was like, oh, OK, what's this now? But uh, yeah, no, I do. Ident- we all identify with that feeling. And I know my own, my youngest daughter, massive anxiety about climate change and uh, that sense of hopelessness. But I suppose you are now telling the story through your art in a very beautiful, very visual way that will hopefully provoke discussion. Is that why also you return to art practice that maybe you were feeling all this anxiety and stress about what was happening and you explored like, you know, the, the camps and now through your, your art, it's given you another voice. There is this kind of political side. I had that anxiety since I was like seven or eight. Remember the ozone layer? 
and the CFCs yeah. and those those old fashioned egg boxes. I had that anxiety since I was since then. And like I remember not being able to sleep with worry and the fear of it. And it's something I've always carried, which is what led me to live in my 20s the way I did. And even my 30s with the, you know, the organic and biodynamic gardening. And yeah, maybe maybe less of the, the working in the shop. But <laughs> you have that. I mean, I remember when I was doing like when I was in art college um, making sculptures around dairy industry and vivisection, animal testing and all that. And being told in no uncertain terms to uh, to stop with that, carry on. That's just silly. Find another theme. Find something more interesting. They just felt it wasn't interesting or valuable as a theme to be working with. Wow. Yeah, that was 20 years ago. Um, and looking back at it, I wish I had had the maturity and the self-belief to continue with it because I would have stayed with an art practice for the last 20 years. I, I, you know, I wouldn't have walked away from it. But I genuinely thought you're not allowed to do that. That's not important enough or not even not important enough, but that's just not, that's not what art is. And it was actually, I went to the RHA had a talk on and it was their first in-person talk after the lockdowns and all that. And it was about art and the rural. And there was amazing speakers there. It was a fabulous day. I sat in the back with my mouth open going, these women are making, it was Lisa Fingleton and uh, Deirdre O'Mahony were talking about their practice specifically and their themes. And I remember sitting in the back, taking all of these notes with my mouth open, literally thinking, but this is what I wanted to do all along. You can do this. These women are doing this. I can do this. I'm allowed now. You know, and it's stupid, but there was that sense of, Oh, you are allowed to do this. Okay, there, you know, there is value in this then, and that you're not alone, um, a lone voice. That other people are interested, and it's so that everyone is so aware of climate change being critical. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's to the fore now. Whereas, like, I mean, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, ten years ago, it was still very much at the the, the back records of, you know, you had to go digging for information. You know. So, I mean, it is wonderful that it's all open. So you're very concerned, obviously, also with the sustainability in your work and your practice and the materials you're using. So can you describe your your studio, what your studio setup is like? We know it's got a fire pit and we know <laughs> you use work on paper and you've got your jars of, of uh, beautiful, your apothecary of beautiful jars. And I can imagine it's very fastidious where you're making notes and sketchbooks. But can you describe your studio and your studio practice? and? Is it somewhere you go every day? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm looking around now and it's an absolute mess, but it's always a mess. I'd love to say, oh, it's just messy today. It's always this bad. Yeah, it's a very small space. It's, what is it, three by four metres squared. There's a high ceiling. We have lots of glass windows. There's one long glass window which reaches down to the floor. And that's especially for Archie, my dog, because he loves to sit at windows and look out. So that's that's Archie's window. Um, and his little studio bed is, is beside that. And you can see the world going by. To be fair, the world is just the hens and the swallows. But still, it's better than nothing. And it's in your yeah. home, Annie. Uh, it's a specially built space away from, from the home. So I came back to the home place because I couldn't afford to, to do this any way else, any other way, the way things are. So I have my own little studio down the back and I come down here every day and 
yeah, just work away. And it, I mean, working could be like research, reading and tracking down papers and things like that as well, as well as the, the physical making thing. I was yeah. going to ask you that because the, the, the making part of the making of your materials is such a huge part of it. Like what amount of time is the the foraging, the creating, the documenting and how much time is the actual making of the piece? Is the making of the piece almost secondary to the materiality? Uh, they're 50-50. Yeah, the, the choices I make in, in, in materials is very much a kind of, it can be a seasonal thing and it can be just snail shells for example like I need to go and collect more snail shells again so that's going to be it now for like I know a spot where the birds come and break the snail shells on the path in a woodland so for the next couple of weeks now our evening walks will be going through those woods and I'll collect those shells snail shells every day I'd often tie in the foraging with we go out walking twice daily because Archie is half springer so and I think I'm half springer as well so we <laughs> We both have a lot of energy and a lot of bounds that we need to get out through walking. Um, so I tie in the foraging with our walks. Do you have a bag with you yeah, every go for your foraging? I've got a special foraging bags. I've got special foraging shovels. Ah. <laughs> Big ones and small ones, ones that fold. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. And I save all of um, the, the empty, don't steal about black bags that dog treats and all come in. So I, oh, I, Ziploc I, bags. Yes, yeah. I save all of those and they go into the foraging bags um, and all the little plastic things that like, you know, you get pesto in occasionally with the, the lids and all on. They're all held in foraging bags as well and they all get used up and filled. And It sounds like quite a big backpack, actually, your foraging bag. It's, a, it's not a small <laughs> little knapsack. No, <laughs> it must be so much seasonality and you must be so much more aware of your environment now that you're extracting from it like you know the seals are there or different plants different seasons you must be so tuned in to nature and you must have observed so much change as well with the the farming yeah a hundred percent yeah yeah in the last few years starting with the foraging of the for the the chemical compounds the color compounds rather that kicked in and like you really do notice like even the space of a few weeks if something is slower than last year coming up last year the the horse tails down by the river were after growing up a lot later than they have this year this year they're way ahead you know those kind of things you you know because of the sunshine obviously you probably notice the difference the heat being earlier things growing yeah yeah completely yeah and maybe water access there was big flooding this winter as well yeah. in, in those fields so perhaps because they have roots that tend to go down very low they're, they're deep tapping roots so yeah I don't know I've got, I've got all these things I guess it's a culmination of several different factors isn't it it's never just one it's always several bits and bobs going in and your your research is it like are you looking it's like old art books or horticulture or are you looking at scientific journals finding out because it's there is a whole chemical side to scientific side to your work yeah research is something that I am trying to improve myself on big time you know it's um that whole like list of like critical books to be reading and papers to be reading that's all wonderful and great but how do you find them <laughs> so I'm I'm currently I actually have a, a ream of, of papers here that are, are um fairly scientific papers that somebody sent me on 
with regards to the new work that I'm researching at the moment. And it's just trying to get more and more of that information. Yeah, I'm kind of, I, I struggle with the accessing of the kind of information I desire. I don't really know how to, where to go to access a lot of it. Um, so it's a lot of like randomly emailing people that I don't know asking them, you know, that work in Trinity or Chagas <laughs> saying who I am and can you please help me and trying to follow things through that way. And yeah, I can imagine a lot of it would be scientific journals. You're trying to figure out how do I do this? How do I extract and get these things? But also I'm thinking a lot of it might be older journals, like, um, I don't know, like 19th century journals that maybe even di- might not be digitized. There is, um, there's quite a few books that have been published. A few of them are academical books, but there's a lot of stuff on color extraction. It's the same principles and the same plants that would be used by yarn dyers. So there's a rich history of that knowledge being held onto. So that that all that stuff is pretty easy to access. Yeah, and even like the the chemistry side of it. Yeah, there's an over at my bookshelf there, and there's like three or four books that are on the the chemistry aspect of it all. Um, so yeah, there's quite a lot within that realm. At the moment, I'm researching soil microbiology, and that's where I'm beginning to yeah just find it difficult to track down behind the academical walls the the papers I'm looking for now. So I'm looking for like new research coming out hot off the press stuff. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you're not just wanting to make things on it. You want to know why and how and what are the chemical compounds. Like so you're really drilling down into the knowledge, not just the the making the colour or getting the, the colour you want. It's why it's there. Were you good at science at school? <laughs> I only did biology and I kind of left in protest because they were doing vivisection. Uh, well, they're doing dissection oh, yeah. of frogs. So I was the kid who was like, Christ, I'm not having this. I'm not. That was the end of my, my science career. I wish I had done chemistry and physics. It would have been so useful to you now, I can imagine. And I was really, and still am, extremely poor at maths. And there was an idea that if you weren't good at like adding, <laughs> that then you shouldn't go near chemistry or physics. But that's, it's a whole different type of style of maths. My brain can cope with physics. I can get my head around that quite easily but I mean ask me to long division and end a story just brain stops so there was I don't know if it's still the same way I don't know if they still do it like that yeah I would have liked to have done all that anyway I read those books now so it's fine <laughs> you mentioned this group these other women you've met and the people you've met who are interested so there must is there sort of a collaboration that you can kind of pool information and papers and like even internationally, are there other people? Is there are there groups of people like you who are trying to figure this out? Yeah, completely. Yeah, I'm a member of a study group which is through Plants and Color in the UK. Flora, I, I'm always afraid to say Flora's surname because I always mispronounce it. Abram, I'm sorry, Flora, if you're listening. Plants and Color is Flora's business, and she does this color study group. So there's a gang of us that have been meeting up for. The last two years, one morning a week online, and it's brilliant. We all like share, we all go down these loopholes of the chemistry and the hypotheses of it all. It's great. Yeah, I am learning about collaboration within my practice as well. For Lost, you know, I went to people to get them to, to make things or to help me make things. The new stuff that I'm looking into for a new installation, that's going to be the same again, going to people and 
figuring stuff out with them of how to extract different things to to make something else out of them. Tell us a bit about your your next project you're working on then. Looking at soil microbiology, I think the way half the world is, it seems to be a really popular topic at the moment. Looking at that from a few different angles, from sound perspectives and visuals, and again attempting to create a space that a human body can be wrapped in. That's both visual and audio and. Are you taking the soil from a certain area or is it the area near you? It will probably be from different areas um, under different management schemes. And from the soil then you will extract colour or some kind of pigment and you'll create different kind of work. And that will be the story. The colour will also be the story of the soil in terms of the chemicals that are there or not there. Mm, It's going to be sound this time. Sound. The sound of the soil? Yeah. The sound of the landscape. The soil specifically, the micro. The microbes, they they do this like chemical signatures. Each different microbe does these different chemical signatures. They do different things depending on their environment in the soil, depending on who else is around, how many of them are there. It's magical. It's going to be extracting those with the help of a microbiologist. Then with the help of Natalia Bayless, who did the sound piece for Lost, constructing some kind of, yeah, a sound piece using those captured sounds it's like a signature so each microbe has a signature like a musical note almost that's my current understanding of it that's where i've got this so far with the research when i actually go and talk to the microbiologist i might be told that i have it all completely romanticized and (laughs) and it isn't like that at all in which case i'll be looking at it from a different angle again but yeah i've become fascinated with the use of soundscape and installation so the installation itself is going to be constructed out of organic matter in, in a particular way that I'm that I'm just beginning to um to look into. And what yeah. will the visual aspect of it be then? Like, or, do you have any idea of that, or is that I'm looking at plant roots and things like that in a textural kind of a way of forming. I want the sensation to be there of like going into a cave almost. We're underneath the soil then, basically. We're hearing the sounds of soil, and we're then uh, in the yeah, roots yeah. beneath. And it's that conversion from macro mind to micro mind. I feel like it's something John Moriarty has said. Like there seems to be Joe the way he would have gone on a lot with that like mind state, the great canyon state of mind he speaks of. It's it's kind of taking that and and making it smaller, but still having that big sense about it. Sounds amazing. I know it's very early. And are you working toward the deadline with this, or is this like a long exploration? process it is exploration but it will be exhibited at some time in the future so yeah they, okay so but you I don't have a fixed deadline that you have to everything has, no. oh great so that's great yeah and this is where it stands now i mean in may i went on residency to live art ireland with the intention of researching researching this as a kinetic piece rather than a, a sound piece of work and it changed through the residence, the three-week residency, the whole concept of the of the installation changed from it being kinetic and sensory in that way to it being the sound. So, I mean, that could all change again in another few weeks or months. That's so wonderful to have that time and to really allow yourself to explore. And did you get, like, you apply for grants as well. So you, you're, I can imagine this whole link with science and science would be, might make it very interesting for, you know, grant applications. Do you spend a lot of time doing that sort of submission side as well to fund your art practice? Yeah, 
Yeah, an awful lot, an awful lot. I applied for the Arts Council bursary this year and unfortunately didn't get it. So all of this time exploring and developing will be um, a little bit trickier for that. <laughs> but there's other yeah. streams that I'm going to apply to as well. So hopefully we'll get a little bit of funding from someplace, which would make everything run a little bit smoother and easier. How much time do you spend on that sort of submission and grant application Huge. Like, is that something you do a bit of every week? The last few weeks, now everything that's been coming up have been things I haven't been interested in. And that's something I've learned in the last few years of being within an art practice completely and utterly, not to apply for everything all the time. Apply, I'm only applying to things that I really want or I'm really interested in developing. I've stopped that whole thing of applying for absolutely every single thing. And then it doesn't mean that you actually want to go down particular routes. So I'm being a lot more cautious about that. And how do you yeah. handle that, like rejection? You just said you got a rejection from the Arts Council. Like, you just kind of get on with it? Or do you do you find it hard when they get that no? I don't, because they're all a gamble. I spent January to the start of May putting in at least, and I mean at least, two applications for proposals, for funding, all the rest of it a week. Like, that's a huge chunk of time. That's a huge amount of proposals and applications. And that's all a gamble. Very happy when something you get a yes back, of course, that's jeepers creepers, that's wonderful. But I mean, the no's outweigh the yeses and just keep on going. I mean, I'm pretty adamant in this. I've taken this on. This is what I am doing. This is what I'm going to keep on doing. And if they keep on saying no to me, I'm going to keep on going. And that's okay. Because I learned that lesson 20 years ago when I was told no, and so I stopped. And I rue the day yeah. I did that to that personal do you regret that now Annie that you lost that time yeah I do no I mean having said that I don't regret how my life went I, I've had a wonderful time I've had a totally blessed privileged time you know I got to scut around the place and had great times and learned a lot and had awful times as well and learned a lot but I mean I'm still here and I'm, I'm strong and I'm healthy and I'm able so that's okay but it was um, hard. I mean, that 21-year-old self being told, no, this is of no interest and having to let that go. And then to realize, actually, no, it's you were just ahead of your time of the fashion of what was fashionable in art, I suppose. I don't know what it was. It was a it was it was a funny old time back then. <laughs> what was the best advice you got as an artist? When I was doing the diploma, one of the lecturers came up to me and said, you need to leave here. You need to do your degree someplace else. And I did. And it was the best advice. <laughs> oh, was that the same college that said they weren't interested in what you were doing, perhaps? Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. That was good advice then. Get out of Dodge. Yeah, out of yeah and fair play to him. He was, he was honest. And if somebody was listening now, an emerging artist, what advice would you give them, Annie? Gosh, I don't think I, I, I'm the person to give advice. I'm only emerging myself. The same lecturer gave another friend of mine advice at the same time that he told me to, to get out of there. He told my friend who was still practicing as well, you have to work to make work. My friend only told me that there recently. Yeah, you have to put in the work to get out the work. Like, I think your work is so unique. I think it's got a, it's so process led. Is there... Any artists that you're kind of like would be your inspirations or is there any artists that you would have loved to have met? There's a few. In Ireland at the moment, there's Aideen Barry and Jesse Jones. Both of their work is amazing. But I would love to talk to them about 
that like research process and like how they go about collaboration and all of that. I loved just the research process specifically. I think I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that both of their work, they put an awful lot of time into intelligent research and there's an awful lot of that backing behind their each of their their bodies of work and yeah I, I would love to talk to them about that and then of course there's Pierre Soulage the, the godfather of Black he only passed away there a couple of years ago one year ago even he was painting like into his hundreds I think he was 102 or 104 or something and he painted every day but he's a French painter who used black the whole time and I wasn't aware of him when I started doing all of the mark making and like focusing in on the blacks and the browns a lot and accidentally came across this stuff where this pieces was being auctioned in the Sotheby's auction and I just saw it and thought gee because that looks like walnutting what's going on here and luckily discovered Pierre Soulard I could be pronouncing his name but um, oh he's incredible was incredible his work is amazing I was also say I loved your your titles the kind of fairy tale thing. I just some of them are really, really beautiful. The work you did for Blood, Bone, Rust, and Stone, your solo exhibition in the Bearer. Like some of the titles were like Hag teaches her to inhale and exhale to ultimate stillness. And they're really, really beautiful and evocative, and they seem to be so linked to folklore. Is folklore something you also research as well as the kind of scientific side? Yeah, it would be a bit. Yeah. There's importance in all stories if you cut away things you know there, there's messages there would be a great um I would have read Women Who Run With Wolves when I was about 18 and it had a huge impact on me that like stories hold messages and that kind of continuation of the oral tradition even though it's now written down and all there's important things there those titles actually came from each of those pieces has a technical drawing it's from a textbook from secondary school for technical graphics the the, the Leaving Cert Technical Graphic Program, which my dad actually wrote the book. So I, I only had to go next door to ask for permission to, to use the, the, the images. But each one of those titles is like tangent A reaches to tangent B and does all, you know, it's all that kind of language. I can't think of them off the top of my head now. But each of the titles for the pieces then corresponded to their titles in the technical drawing book. And so I just played out each one of those in a kind of a little pattern. So like circle, wherever circle was used in the title for the, the technical graphics book, I used the word hag. So each time hag is there, it's where circle and tangent became between or touches or inhales, one of those kind of action words. So I was playing with all of that. It was great fun. I had so much fun titling those pieces. <laughs> That's amazing. The word hag is so evocative, isn't it? It's, it's such a powerful, you know, the kind of the old crone, the hag. You see, you're bringing it back to science again. There's a real interest in you. You have that connection or interest in that scientific process. Yeah, um, yeah that, that crossover, yeah. And you do workshops as well. Because I'm sure, like, imagine some people would be interested in learning how to do this. And if somebody was like, is listening to this going, I'd love to do this. Like, is there a book you'd recommend? Or do you think they should go in a workshop with you or... Could they just go out and just experiment? How would somebody start learning how to do this? Yeah, doing a workshop or something where 
getting a book is, is a great way because then you're not wasting valuable resources either. You know, you have a bit of a, a know about you. Again, I always bring it back down to the why people struggling. Yeah, I do workshops. I do them online. I do one to one. Got a few in-person ones this summer coming up. Yeah, and plenty of other people do as well. I mean, there's a whole host of people doing this. The charcoal ones, though, I think I'm probably the only person doing those. And how would somebody find you if they want to see more of your work or get in touch about workshops? The website is www.anniehogstudio.com. And there's a contact button there. You can email me over through. Instagram then is anniehog underscore the wild hedge inc co. And you'll notice me because it's a black and white photo of Archie's head and then my head. So <laughs> that's us. And give it a shout out. I'm always happy to, to talk to people. That's great. I love the idea that the workshops are online. That makes it very accessible. What's been happening with the online workshops is that people who kind of run all of these things get me in to do them as well, along with other artists. I just have to turn up, do the workshop and it's done kind of thing. So, yeah, I work through like video that I send out prep videos and kind of follow up things then as well throughout the after the workshop. Great that you can kind of pass on the knowledge to the people. Yeah. And there really is like a there's there's a hunger for for all of this now. And it's brilliant. I mean, it's fabulous. People are doing really interesting things. There's the whole kind of alternative photography scene that's all done with natural biodegradable non-toxic substances and print as well and oh there's a load of stuff it's very exciting I, i'm certainly gonna to have to look at my own studio <laughs> and the colors i'm using <laughs> well annie i think i could chat to you all day i just your work is so fascinating and maybe you get back in touch when you've tied down the idea for this sound soil piece to tell us more about it it sounds really interesting thank you just thank you very much for sharing your story and wishing you all the success with your teaching and your research and your grant applications and your amazing work for those of you who'd like to dive a little deeper i include photos of annie's work links to her social media website uh, in the blog post that will accompany this episode in the show notes and on my website and thank you everyone for listening to this episode of the warrior artist if you have time, I'd be very grateful if you could subscribe, rate or review as this helps others find me. If you'd like to see my work, you can get in touch with me on Instagram at Aideen underscore Glynn. That's E-A-D-A-O-I-N-G-L-Y-N-N. And through my website, AideenGlynn.com. Wishing you all the best with your creative journey. Have a great week in the studio. And remember, you are a warrior artist. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> Oh, hang on, i got to stop recording. Did I stop? Oh, I don't know if I've stopped recording. Oh, recording is still up. Stop recording. <laughs>